Church, if you will, open up your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalms. And don't get too comfortable yet, because I'm going to have you stand in just a moment. I'm going to have you stand in just a moment. Some of you have been sitting for about 40 or 30 minutes now. You got here early and you've been sitting ever since. All right? I'm going to give you a chance to stretch your legs just a little bit, but also going to stand in the honor of reading of God's Word. So if you can turn to Psalm chapter 14, then when you find that and you're ready and if you're able, please stand here. The most important words that you will hear today, not my words, the words of God. Psalm chapter 14. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Church, this is the word of the Lord. As you take your seat, I want to remind you. Church, let's turn our attention today to this song. The title of our message is Confronting Sin. Confronting Sin. Confrontation is not always a fun thing, especially when you are in the wrong. Would you agree with me? Confrontation is not always a fun thing, especially when you are the one in the wrong. If you agree with that statement, which I think most of us would, then this passage we are studying today is not going to be much fun for you, at least not the way this passage begins. I say that because today the Holy Spirit and the Spirit will soften our hearts and open our eyes and clear out our ears. We will be confronted. That's what's going to happen in this passage today. We will be confronted by the Holy God. And this confrontation will reveal that we are in the wrong. I want to play games with you today. I want to beat around the bush and we get it to you like it is. We, church, are in the wrong. But as we study through this psalm, not only will we be comforted, excuse me, confronted by God with our sin, we will also be comforted by God with His love. Psalm chapter 14 teaches us this, church, that we are hopelessly lost in our sin, but God provides us with the hope of salvation. We are hopelessly lost in our sin, but God, God provides us with the hope of salvation. Now, just to remind you, we're in a series of sermons in which we're looking at the Psalms, this book of Psalms, and individual Psalms here, to learn about the general doctrines or teachings of Scripture. We began with the doctrine of Revelation in Psalm chapter 19. We moved to the doctrine of God in Psalm chapter 90. And then lastly, we looked at the doctrine of humanity from Psalm chapter 8. Today we have before us Psalm chapter 14 and the doctrine or the teaching of sin. 
Now talking about sin, studying about sin is not what most of us wake up in the morning hoping we will get to do that day. We don't like to talk about sin, but we must. We must because our understanding of sin is the first step in us being healed from our sin. Learning about sin is kind of like medicine to a child, right? You know what it's like if you take that medicine, whatever it is, that cough syrup or whatever. It's just nasty. I mean, you can barely get it down. Before you can swallow it, you're saying, give me some water, give me some water. And yet, once the medicine sinks in, you begin to realize that it's worth it. In a similar way, confronted with our sin is not fun in the moment, but it leads to healing for our souls if we respond appropriately. Of the doctrine of sin, Pastor Charles Spurgeon says this, It is a truth which is ever distasteful to carnal minds. May our minds, church, not be so carnal or so fleshly or so ungodly this morning that we sit out where God is feeding us before it works its way through our minds and hearts and produces, I pray, godly sorrow leading to repentance and faith. I want to share with you three main truths this morning from Psalm chapter 14. The first is this. The heart of sinners is a heart that rejects God. It's a very important statement. It's very simple but profound. The heart of sinners is a heart that rejects God. I'm going to use this term sinners a lot through this message. Let me ask you, what is a sinner? How would you define that in your life? What is a sinner? Now, I think this passage is going to help us understand what a sinner is, but it might be good as we get started to give a definition. Wednesday evening in our youth Bible study, our young people worked at answering this question, and they did a fantastic job. They said things like a sinner is someone who disobeys God. They said things like a sinner is someone who fails to live for the glory of God. They are right. That is what is meant by the word sinner. Now notice with me what these verses in Psalm chapter 14 say about humanity and our sinfulness. Notice verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Even from this very first verse, you get a wake-up call as to the horror of sin. Sin flows forth from a heart that rejects God. Now, when this verse speaks about a fool, it doesn't mean someone who lacks intelligence. There's a lot of smart people in our world who reject God. A fool in God's eyes is not someone who doesn't know a lot of information, but someone who fails to submit their life to God. Now, most of us here today would probably read this opening line and say, that's right. It's a fool to be an atheist. Of course there is a God. Most of us would probably say that. And I, I would agree with you. But, but this verse isn't merely condemning those who reject the existence of God. This verse is condemning any and all rejection of God in his place. You see, while it's true that you can reject God by believing that God does not exist, you can also reject God by believing that God does exist, but also acting as though he is not worthy of your obedience. It's exactly what we see in the rest of this verse. It says they are corrupt. How is this defined the person who says there is no God? Well, this person is corrupt. He does abominable deeds. And there is none who does good. Let's look backwards through verse 1 for just a moment. This verse says, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That's speaking about a person's actions. 
what you do, how you speak. Sinner does things which are abominable in God's sight. But where does that, where do those actions come from? Well, it comes from a heart that has become corrupt. Look backwards from verse 1. We do abominable things because our hearts are corrupt. It's like a spooled carton of milk, right? What happens when you open up a spooled carton of milk? It stinks. It stinks. Well, why does it stink? Because it has become spoiled. That's what that word corrupt means. Our hearts are corrupt. They become spoiled. That means that according to this verse, we, we, have, we have these corrupt hearts that then overflow and manifest themselves in deeds that are bad. But our problem isn't simply that we do bad things, it's that our hearts are sick with sin. But where does corruption come from? Well, work backwards again from parts of the state of this God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something sinful? Have you ever done something that God would find abominable? Something wrong? No, you told a lie in your life. You have to answer yes. Have you ever said something mean to somebody that needs to say? You've done something. You have sinned. Of course, you and I have sinned. But according to this verse, we have corrupt hearts if we sin, which are corrupt because we have said there is no God. And you say, well, I've never said that, Pastor. I've never said there is no God. Well, maybe you've never spoken those words, but what do your actions say? What do my actions say? Every time you lie, you're saying there is no God. Every time you gossip about someone, you're saying there is no God. Every time you lust after someone, you're saying there is no God. Every time you covet what another person has, you are saying there is no God. Every time you speak harshly to your spouse and your kids and your parents, you are saying there is no God. Now, I'm not saying that you don't believe God exists. But I am saying that when you sin, when I sin, we are acting as if God doesn't exist. One writer put it this way, whether or not you would call himself an atheist, the fool is one who has decided that God shall have no place in Church, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. The, split, the, the serpent took God's word, you remember, Genesis chapter 3, and the serpent twisted God's word. Did God really say that you're not supposed to eat of this tree? And in that moment of decision, Adam and Eve chose to reject God by rejecting what God had told them not to. Now, if you would have asked them in that moment, hey, Adam, hey, Eve, do you believe that God exists? They would have looked at, looked at you like you were a fool. They would have just thought, man, there, there are no questions in life. No matter what your teacher said, there are no questions. You just ask me, you just ask me that we believe that God exists? Of course we believe that God exists. How do we walk and talk with Him? Of course we believe that God exists. Where do you think we came from? Where do you think all this came from? They said, are you asking God? Of course God exists. They believe God existed, and yet their bites from the fruit revealed that they had chosen to live as if God did. You see, in that moment, their heart said, there is no God. Or at least, he doesn't matter. And the result of that rejection of God is that all humanity has been infected with this sin nature. We are born, we come into this world rejecting God. Which 
corrupts us from the inside out. And we see the evidence of that because you and I know that we are guilty of actions that would be classified as sin against God. Friend, if you don't think God exists, you are a fool. And for the rest of us, if we think that we are wise because we believe God exists, and yet we live as though His existence should make no difference in the way that we live our lives, we are just as much fools as those who would say God doesn't what father ever said to his child, Son, you haven't obeyed me. You've done exactly what I told you not to do. But I'm just glad that you believe that I exist. We're in good terms. No father says that. No father looks at a disobedient son and says, Oh, I don't worry about it. I'm just glad that you believe I exist. No. To, to reject what the father has said is a denial of the father's existence. When we get down to the heart of it. Whether you are an intellectual atheist or a practical atheist, the truth is that we have all rejected God. But maybe you think that you can get away with it. Maybe you think it's just me, it's just little old me, God will say no. He doesn't really care about me. Well, I would point you back to where we were last week, Psalm chapter 8, where we learned that God does care about humanity. And I would also point you to verse 2 of Psalm chapter 14. Which says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. God does notice. God is actively looking at all humanity to see if there are any who, unlike the fool, have understanding and seek after God instead of rejecting God. God is searching your heart even today. God is all present. He sees everywhere you are. Everywhere you go, he's there. And he's all-knowing, which means he knows everything about you. Everything that you know about you and everyone else knows about you. And everything that only you know about you and no one else knows about you. And perhaps even things that you don't even know about yourself. He knows all. And God cares whether or not you have rejected him. Last week we said that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. God is watching us and noticing how we live in this world he has made. Which means God is not ignoring your sin. Neither is God ignoring my sin. He is taking note of how we are living. He is taking note of the state of our hearts. But maybe you're still not convinced that these verses are about you. You say certainly such strong language is reserved for people who are really bad. Those who really run headlong into sin, but I'm not that bad. Not me. I, I would be one of the good ones in this world. Yes, I mean, I've made my mistakes, but overall, I've done more good than bad. I don't think I have too much to worry about when I look at these other sinners. Friend, the first one was not clear enough. Please take a look at verse 3. What does God see when he looks down from heaven to see if there are any who are not foolishly rejecting him? Well, we have to find They have all turned aside, verse 3 says. Together they, talking about all of humanity, have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Notice how it tags on that little phrase for emphasis. Verse 1 said the same thing, verse 2, excuse me, verse 3 repeats it, and then adds on, just in case you want to say, I'm the exception, not even one. Not even one. Psalm says that God has looked at all humanity and he has not found even one who does good. Together, 
they, humanity, have become corrupt. We like to compare ourselves to others and say we're not that bad. But listen, God loves all humanity. The Neros and the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world, along with the sweet old grandmas and the single moms trying their best, and the teenagers or adults with perfect Sunday school attendance, he lumps them all in one category and says they're sinful, corrupt, and rebels against God. That is the state of fallen humanity. In the book of Romans, Paul quotes these three verses from Psalm chapter 14. And then he quotes a few other verses from the Old Testament which say the same thing. And then he summarizes the state of humanity with these words. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Perhaps we can summarize these three verses this way. If you tuned out, then I'll just tune in and do these three sentences. Humanity rejects God. God sees us rejecting Him. And all of us are guilty of rejecting Him. The heart of sinners is a heart that rejects God. And friend, you cannot expect to reject God if God knows you reject Him and then just ignore what you see. You can't expect God to ignore you. As the writer of Hebrews said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living. Now we're going to move from the heart of sinners to the hostility of sinners. The second truth I want to share with you is this. The hostility of sinners is the life of rejecting God's people. The hostility of sinners is the life of rejecting God's people. Verse 4 through 6 are built on one of the ways of sinful heart. A heart that rejects God manifests itself through the persecution of God's people. See, it just makes sense that if you reject God, then you will reject those who belong to God. Notice verse 4. Verse 4 says, Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers do eat up my evil, as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. Here we see that sinners, those who are fools, those who fail to live according to the knowledge that God is God and worthy of obedience, those who fail to call upon Yahweh, the one true God, are devouring God's people. You see those words that they're eating, eating up God's people as you would eat up bread. Devouring God's people. A heart that works against God also works against God's people. And they go on to verse 5. It says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, now this verse raises, verse 5 raises a couple of important questions. The first we're going to look at now, and the second we're going to hold off for just a moment. The first question that is raised by this verse is, why are the evildoers in great terror? That, that, that's referring there to the evildoers. They, speaking of the evildoers, are in great terror. Why? Because God is with the generation of the righteous. Why are the evildoers in great terror? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that deep down within each of us, God has placed this longing and even this understanding, even though it is a twisted understanding of the sin, that God is God, and He is to be honored and obeyed. God has placed this longing within every human being to be at peace with the God who has created us. And an understanding that the enemy of God is a terrible thing. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it this way, he said, God has placed eternity in the 
the hearts of men. I believe that even the staunchest, even most hardcore rejectors of God, when they are alone and truly considering the world, the path they have chosen to shudder at what is coming for them, that God is real, that He really does punish sin, and deep down they know that He is real, and that He really does punish sin. God's Word tells us that people reject God not because they don't have enough evidence, but because they have suppressed the sufficient evidence that God has given them. In other words, all people know that there is a God, and yet they consciously reject Him. If you want scriptural proof of that, go to Romans chapter 1, start in verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter, and you will see just that, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Which means, deep down, if they will stop their rebellion long enough to examine their hearts, they know that they, that they are opposed to God, and though they may not admit it, they tremble at the thought of facing God one day. They are in great terror. I like how James Montgomery Boyce said it. He said, to put it another way, no one is threatening these unbelieving persons. They seem secure, as the wicked often do. But in their quiet moments, deep in their hearts, they sense that if this is a moral universe, as they suspect it must be, then they are guilty of any sins and will undoubtedly suffer for them. They are unnerved by this and shudder violently. Or if you'll allow me to quote from Charles Spurgeon once more, he said this, The most hardened of men have their periods when conscience casts them into a cold sweat of alarm. As cowards are cruel, so all cruel men are in part cowards. The ghost of past sin is a terrible specter to haunt any man. And though unbelievers may boast as loudly as they will, a sound is in their ears, which makes them ill at ease. Brings that sound to the truth of God. It's the truth that God is with the righteous. And what that means is that He is not with the unrighteous. And if God is not with the unrighteous, then that means God is not on their side, which means God is opposed to them. Friend, we are sinners, as verses 1 through 3 have said, we have reason to be in great care. And then verse 6 comes back to the persecution of God's people. Verse 6 says, You, speaking about evildoers, See there, verse 6, you would shame or frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Here the poor is simply another reference to God's people. The evil who receive the shame or quit God's people. And again, we see the hostility of sinners flowing from hearts that reject God comes hearts that are hostile to all that belongs to God. All that points to God, which will be God's I hope this, what I'm about to say, is not a misapplication of this verse, but I do think we see the same thing today. In a person who is not seeking to live according to God's way, you see, it's very likely that the person living in sin will not want to be around God's people. It's very likely that a person living in sin will not want to be around God's people. And eventually that person will not just passively reject God's people, but will actively reject God's people. So when we say this, church, beware of letting sin creep into your life. Because it will push you away from God and will also push you away from the people of God. Very few people are able to regularly live in sin and regularly gather through the church. In fact, I think it takes a very hardened heart to do such a thing because gathering with God's people will expose sin in your heart. 
So you know you're sinning and you don't want to be confronted with your sin, the last people you want to be around are God's people who are seeking to run from sin and into holiness. Which means, church, if you are slipping away from God's people, it might be a byproduct of sin slipping into your Verses 4 through 6 teaches that sinners, people who are not only reject God, but also reject God's people. And yet, these three verses raise a very, very serious question. As I prepared and studied over this passage, this is the question that, that just burns in my mind as I read. As I read verses 1 through 3, which teaches that all people are sinners. There's no one good. There's no one who is right and all the sake of God who means all have been affected by God. And then I go to verses 4 through 6 to see that there's this category of people who are called God's people. This category of people who are called the, the generation of the righteous. In fact, there seems to be some sort of contradiction between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. You know, what is going on? Now, how are, there, how, are, how are all people sinful, and yet God can say there are people who are my people? What in the world is going on? Who are these people who are called the righteous? I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that number. I want to be a part of that number. The righteous people. Who are they and how can I join them? I want to be a part of the righteous. Yes, it means that the world will reject me according to verses, according to verses 4 through 6. But it also means the Lord will accept me. And I don't know about you, I would much rather be accepted by the Lord and rejected by the world than accepted by the world and rejected by the Lord. But how? If there exists this people who God says no to God, that's the generation of the righteous. Those are the ones to whom I am a refuge. How do I get to be a part of those people? I can't just clean up my actions. One, I'll try it. I can't do it. I sin even when I don't want to sin. But even if I was able somehow to try to clean up my actions, that doesn't fix the problem because we've already learned the problem isn't the outward action of sin, but the problem is our hearts. And I might be able to stop doing some bad things and start doing some good, good things, but I cannot do some heart surgery and give myself a new heart that's not dead in sin. I can't do it, and you can't do that for yourself either. So then I come back to this question of how. My simple actions are merely the symptoms of a deeper problem that my heart is a heart that rejects God. And I was born that way and I don't have the power to change my heart. When I look to myself, I am left completely hopeless. And the same is true of you. If you look to yourself to fix the problem of sin in your life, you are left completely hopeless. But church, praise God that He has not left us to ourselves. I would shout it loud, but I might blow the speakers out, and I don't want to do that. Praise God that He has not left us to ourselves. We have seen the heart of sinners in this song. We have seen the possibility of sinners in this song. The church, the psalm is not over. It is my high honor and privilege today, church, to direct your attention to the last verse of this song. Verse 7, where we see the hope for sinners. The third truth I want you to see today is that the hope of sinners is a salvation that comes from God. The hope, church, of sinners is a salvation that comes from God. 
verse 6, left us with this glimmer of hope when we saw the word refuge right there at the end. Now verse 7 opens up this grand truth of God's love towards sinners. We see in verse 7 a, a cry for salvation from God. We see in verse 7 confidence that God will restore. And we see in verse 7 rejoicing that God will do this great work. Notice verse 7. Verse 7 says, Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Listen, church. Here, sinners are given hope. Here we see how the unrighteous can be counted as belonging to the generation of the righteous. Here we see how those who have rejected by God, rejected God, and therefore been rejected by God, can be counted as the people of God. Church, our hope does not come from ourselves or any other person like us. Our hope comes from Zion. That is, salvation comes from God. We desperately need God to save us from our sin. We desperately need God to restore our brokenness. We desperately need God to give us rejoicing and gladness in place of our terror at falling into His angry hands. And that is exactly what God has done. Some have suggested that what the nation of Israel had in verses 4 through 6 was a reminder of God's salvation of His people from Egypt. See, Pharaoh sought to devour the people of God. That is verse 4. Egypt was thrown into terror with the plagues and then thrown into confusion by God in the Red Sea. Notice verse 5. And yet they still tried to frustrate the plans of the Hebrews as they pursued them across the Red Sea. Notice <coughs> part of verse 6. But God was their refuge and rescued them, which resulted in a time of rejoicing and celebration on the opposite shore of the Sea of the Red Sea as they celebrated the victory that God had won for them. Notice the end of verse 6 in Psalm chapter 14. And now, centuries later, Israel, in the context in which the psalm was written, having turned their backs on God, is given in this song and told to once again cry out to this God for salvation. Oh, the salvation for Israel will come out of time. Church, salvation has come. And not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, for all who would repent and believe. Well, what does this salvation look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go back to verse 3 for just a moment. I think the end of verse 3 leaves us longing. Well, I was studying this, and I was studying over and over these verses, and I read verse 3, and the horror of the fact that all the circumcised, the other day comes around, there's none who does good, not even one. My heart was longing for them to be one who would be good. My heart was longing for there to be one who would do what is wrong. Just one who is not corrupt. Just one who is wise and who does not say in his heart, there is no God. But we can tell that all humanity is corrupt. No one is righteous. If all humanity is corrupt, like verse 3 tells us we are, then humanity must look somewhere other than humanity. They must look to God. But what man, Scripture says, can look on God and live? It still seems like we are the helpless. Oh, how helpless our 
our state is that we need God, but we cannot possibly get to God because we are sinners. Oh, oh, only if God would become man. If only He would become man. If only He would come to us. Will the salvation would come in the form of a perfect human who would be perfect in our place and be rejected in our place, who would take our sin and give us his righteousness? Oh, if that would only happen. And yet it has. That is the good news of the gospel, church. It has. This morning has come in the words of the prophet Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In the words of an old man named Simeon, standing in the temple, holding a little baby born to a virgin mother, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people Israel. And in the words of an apostle to a young pastor named Titus on the island of Crete, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control of upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, salvation has come and his name is Jesus. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live and he died the sinner's death that you and I should die. He exchanged your sin and my sin for his righteousness so that all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Jesus is salvation come from God. Jesus is God come to us. Don't look to yourself for salvation. Don't look to any other mere human for salvation. Look to Zion. Look to God. Look to Jesus. He bore the way of all your sins. He paid the penalty of death for all your sins. And God accepts the blood of Jesus shed on the cross as payment in full for your sins. It completely satisfies God's wrath towards your sin and towards my sin. It completely redeems us from our sins. So church, don't just try your best and then let God, Jesus, do the rest. Your best is sin. There is none who does good, not even one, except for Jesus. Our only hope is God's grace. Our only hope is the free gift of salvation. Our only hope is Jesus. Church. Only the grace and love and mercy of God can transform our gloom to gladness and our rejection to riches. This passage began, and I told you to put I gave you warning. This passage began confronting us with our sin, but it ends by comforting us with God's love. You listen very closely. I don't, I don't, I can't read your I, I, can't be, I can't look inside of each of you right now and know exactly where you stand for God. I can't. But God can, and He can help you understand where you stand in relation to Him. If God today has confronted you with your sin, 
If you feel the shame and guilt of having rejected the most high God, please don't try to confront your sin on your own. All you have to offer is more sin, and that's why I throw a cruel hope of God. Here's my plea, I'm closest. Here's my plea, Here's my plea, lost person who walked in here today, and God has drawn your heart to trust in Him. Here's my plea. As you are confronted with the truth concerning your sin, please confront your sin with the truth of Jesus. Because He can hear he can take care of it. In fact, he already has. When he hung on the cross and he endured God's wrath for this, he took care of it. He confronted your sin. So what's left of us is to repent, say, God, I am a sinner just like you say. God, I'm going to trust Because he saved me from my sin, just like you tell me. Perfectly, put your eyes on your presentation. Church, if I could summarize this with one last statement, it would be this. We are great sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. And I wonder today that you have trusted in this great Savior for salvation. I just wonder today, and I don't care if this is your first time ever stepping in this building and gathering Southside Baptist Church, or if you've been coming here for 20 or 30 or 60 years, I want you to think about the person next to you, I want you to think, think about yourself.
not because I deserve it, but because Jesus paid the price for my sin. God, I believe that when Jesus died, he was very the punishment that I should deserve, that I deserve, that I should have deserved. And he paid for every sin, not just part of my sin, he paid for it all. And Father, today, I trust in Jesus Christ for rescuing me from my sin. Father, today, I give you control of my life. You come in, you obey my life. You change my heart as only you can. Father, forgive me of my sin and make me a new person. Help me to live with you all the days of my life. In just a moment, we're going to stay in these things, but I want you to have a little bit longer to think about where you're at. I'll be quiet in just a moment. Father, a noise of specifically exalting Jesus. 
Let's 